Welcome to Human Tech, a podcast about the intersection between humans and technology. My name is Guthrie, and I'm here with Susan. Hello, Susan. Hi, Guthrie. And this time, you get to do the intro. We have a special guest that I'm really excited about. Uh, this is Elizabeth Rosenzweig, and uh, she has many titles, so I'm just going to give you a couple of them. So one of the things I think she's the most well-known for and we'll talk about is she's the founder and director of World Usability Day. She's also a principal consultant and an adjunct uh, faculty member at Bentley University. So hi, Elizabeth. Hi. Hi, Susan. Hi, Guthrie. Yeah, so Guthrie, you've, you've never met Elizabeth in person, have you? No, no. Okay. Never yeah, know. so I have. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I have. And, we've we've, uh, uh, we've done, I have a lot of familiarity with the day itself. With oh, the good. World Usability Day. Yes, that, that, is, um, that is our most popular day of the year. Oh, that's you, great to hear. Do you know by, how he means that? By like a factor um, of 10. Okay, right. so. Explain what you explain. mean by that, Guthrie. Oh, uh, just whenever that, that day, like, like uh, no one no one will call us to do any work. And the moment that the day sort of begins to sneak around, the phone just rings off the hook and we usually have to turn people down because we can only do one. Right, there's right, only one course. World Usability right. Day. I wish you would have done like Usability Week or sort of <laughs> well, like, the, you know, like the LGBTQ yeah, month. Good idea. That. And um, <clears throat> I don't know if that's a lead into a conversation or just a, a dream, <laughs> but um, we actually have a lot of plans. <laughs> So the idea, though, is really just to do something around that time of year, second Thursday in November. Uh, you know, originally we thought of it like Earth Day, that it would be a day where people could sort of rally around and um, raise awareness of how important it is that humans and technology uh, work better together. Do you remember the first year, the first World Usability Day? Absolutely. What year was it? So it was 2005. Okay. Um, and I remember thinking if we're on like two continents, I would be thrilled uh, because the whole idea, we had this charter and we, you know, had, uh, which we're actually going to go back online with uh, sort of, you know, excuse me, our principles. And it started with the, the notion that, you know, human error is a misnomer. You know, we were basically wanting to start a usability revolution. Um, get everyone aware of how technology needs to work for us and demand that it's usable and accessible. Um, and the first year was fun because we did get uh, like a couple uh, events in Europe and a bunch of events in the United States, particularly I remember because I was at the Museum of Science in Boston uh, and there we set up um, exhibits in the museum that demonstrated usability issues. Like for example, one of them was called a sock sort. And you know, a lot of, a lot of it was school groups walking through during the, the work day. Mm -hmm. So, so the, the kids would, we'd ask the kids to sock the sort, uh, uh, sorry, <laughs> sort the socks, <laughs> little tongue twister there, uh, sort the socks into, you know, whatever categories they thought made the most sense. And then you'd, you'd stand there and watch and you'd see sometimes it would be size and sometimes it would be length of the sock and some, you know, sometimes it would be color. And then uh, you could see parents and, and teachers in the background sort of looking at that like, oh, right, right people think about things differently, you know? I mean, some of them already knew that. Uh, but my favorite um, 
activity that we had in the museum that that year and then that this one ended up at like the St. Louis Museum of Science the following year and then like in a couple of malls in Brazil where they had this uh, I know it's not crazy that they had this um, it was called alarm clock alley and there was uh, like two people racing to set time on uh, two of the same alarm clocks. <laughs> and that was terrific because that would be the one where, where, where people would in the background would stand around and go, oh, thank goodness, I thought it was me. I thought I was the only one having this problem. Yeah. You know? And that was the intent. The intent was to, to show people that, you know, you don't have to feel stupid by technology. And if you do, you don't have to put up with it and blame yourself. You know, it just, it just irritated me that people would just assume they were stupid if they couldn't figure out a piece of technology. So um, so an interesting thing happened, right? Because that was 2005. And then we, we really, you know, by 2008, we were on every continent. And it was like 220 events. And, you know, we were doing like passing pieces of research around the world. And like, it was pretty exciting. Um, and then, uh, you know, the technology bubble burst with the, the crash in 2008, 2009. And by 2010, I pretty much thought, well, that was a good run. It, you know, it did at least help people become aware. Uh, and honestly, between you and I, I just thought it would die. Uh, and then it seemed like it took on a, a grassroot, you know, life of its own, um, where people would write me an email and say, well, what's the theme? You haven't thought of the theme, you know? And what's, and I was like, I thought they were I was like, gonna- come on, let's go. <laughs> No. So it got revived. And especially when I went to to work at Bentley around that time where I had lots of design and research associates working for me. And so, you know, we would we would have worked on the website and reached out. Um, and then we started getting back our themes and 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 sort of really just building it so that it was more about people doing different events, but that it was being connected on a larger on a larger uh, well theme. So after the elections, the last general election in the United States, we decided, and then I had like, you know, more people advising me and it wasn't sort of just me. Um, You know, we tried to think about relevant themes, uh, things that were happening in the world. So I think it was 20, I want to say 2017, we decided to go with uh, inclusiveness. Yes, that's what it was. And that was great because then we could connect universal design and then it started to actually, you know, in 2017 was a different world than 2005 and talking about universal design and accessibility and, and, and also using those as use cases somehow brought it home. Maybe it was where the world was starting to be at. Um, and so I remember in 2017, there was an event in Saudi Arabia, uh, all about inclusive inclusivity and universal design, which was just amazing, (laughs) you know, and it was like a sort of a teaching sharing kind of a thing. Uh, and then last year we decided, um, because of, you know, we tried to tune into current events too. And, um, I think it was several things, but particularly that, um, missile launch scare in Hawaii, uh, where we realized, you know, design, design can go for good or evil. Well, you know about that, Susan, also with like neuroscience and all that, but, Mm -hmm. Um, and so we made the theme design for good or evil. And then, you know, it's interesting, like different areas, 
Oh, different parts of the world interpret the theme different. So like I was just to go back for a second to inclusivity, like in Los Angeles, they were just all about LGBT. Like to them, that was universal design. Right. But, you know, in Saudi Arabia, when I'm talking about uh, universal design, they're talking about like accessibility, like, you know, Jaws readers for, you know, blind people and, you know, ramps for wheelchairs, you know, so it's like different places are interpreting uh, the theme sort of, you know, mm. for their own way. So, yeah. uh, and that happened with design for good or evil. And so this year, um, we're doing design for the future that we want. And we're connecting also, uh, because of some other projects I'm doing, we're connecting um, to the United Nations. Uh, they have um, sustainable goals that they have been working on since 2015 uh, and their sustainable goals for 2030. And they're all connected to, you know, basically all about making the world work better. Um, but some of it is more, you know, water quality. Uh, some of it is infrastructure, some of it's technology. Um, and so we're looking um, in, in this lens of design for the future that we want. We're looking at how we can connect to things bigger than ourselves and then see how, you know, different um, local areas interpret that and, um, you know, sort of on the ground, how we can make an impact. So we're shifting. It's becoming very relevant. I think what's also fun is, um, there is a wave of activism now. So that notion that we had in 2005 of a usability revolution actually is a little more relevant at this point in time. Uh, so we'll see where it goes, but, um, yes. <laughs> I could go on more about that, but I don't know. Uh, well, what's the we, we should give people the day. So what's the date of World Usability right. Day so 2019? Yes, November 14th. And it's always the second Thursday in November. Um, so this year we have uh, a goal. I've revived a goal that um, I had in the beginning. Um, and that is uh, the United Nations has a calendar of events. And if yeah. you look at it, it's uh, it's interesting because like I, Earth Day was our model, but the the calendar of the United Nations before and after Earth Day have I believe one uh, one of them is World Creativity and In Innovation Day, and one of them is Intellectual Property Day, and there's another one Book and Copy Day, um, which isn't the same as IP. But anyway, so there's room for us on that calendar. Um, and so that's one of the reasons we're looking to connect these projects to find um, projects on the ground that connect to the United Nations so that we oh, can reach that interesting. goal. Yeah. Yes, we'll see how that goes. But second Thursday of November every year. Now, is there a, uh, a, a website where people can go and find out what, you know, what yes. World Usability Day events might be occurring near them? Yes, and or they could sign up to run one. Um, WorldUsabilityDay.org. So I don't know if... If right. I should spell it, world no, usability. You know, yeah. I'll, I'll put it in the the notes. Okay. Worldusabilityday.org. Yep. And so, just you know, because some of the people listening, I'm sure you know, are familiar with it, but others might not be. And you kind of mentioned this, but I just want to clarify: this is not like uh, like the organization puts on specific events. This is. Um, uh, people all over the place organize their own events. There's a, and so if anyone's listening and there isn't one near you and you want to put something together, you know, just go ahead and put it together. And also, I know Elizabeth, a lot of, um, I mean, uh, Guthrie, I think some of the requests we get to speak are at private organizations, you know, companies and so on that are having 
their own World Usability Day in-house, like it's not open to the public. Yeah. Yeah. So so I would just want people listening to realize you can do that too. You don't have to open it up to the public, but if you want to, that that would be fun also. Right. So the idea, just to sort of build on that for a minute, the idea is that everyone can get involved. This is, you know, inclusive because we're spreading the word. We want, you know, people to feel empowered to make technology work for people. Um, I mean, it is, you know, we are part, we are interested in making things for the greater good. And, and so that's why, you know, if you want to do a meetup at a bar, like we've had that, I think there was one here, we did one in, um, someone did one in Sydney, Australia. I thought that was great. You know, let's see the pictures, just talk about it for a few minutes, get together. And, you know, it's, it's like, it's like, there isn't a specific thing that it has to be. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a conference. Doesn't have to be a talk. Doesn't have to be all day. I mean, you can just do whatever you want to do to acknowledge and celebrate yeah, the day and, where we all yeah. think about things being usable. Yeah. Yeah. And extra points if you want to start a project about it. And if you do, you know, about the theme, if you do, or you're interested in any of this stuff I mentioned with the United Nations, there is a place on the website um, to reach out and I get the email. So great. I will respond. Yes. Now I want to, I want to, um, there, Elizabeth, uh, there's so many, you know, you and I, we get together or we talk on the phone and it's like the time just flies by and we feel like we just started. Exactly. So Guthrie, uh, Guthrie, you're going to have a really hard time getting a word in, but just go ahead <laughs> if you want to just like jump in absolutely, and try. Um, I'm here. So I, I, I know how to interrupt people. I, okay. I went to law school. I'm really good at that. Oh, excellent. Good training. So, uh, <laughs> Yeah, but you haven't tried to interrupt. Zing. You know, I'm polite. Yeah. Okay. I'm not going to get in that one. But <laughs> <laughs> So um, one of the things I want to talk about is your book. But before we talk about your book, I want to talk about the intro to your book. Oh, yeah. Uh, because it's just such a wonderful introduction. Oh, it, was, it was written by me. I know. Um, <laughs> so awesome. I... Yeah, so I have a vested interest, but I want to mention that because this is like, um, and and Elizabeth, you're probably tired of hearing about this, but it's like one of my favorite stories that I got to talk to you, and I write about it in the no, not introduction. It's the it's a forward, it's yeah. a forward. before right. the introduction, before the introduction, <laughs> the, the forward. I got the first word. You did. Um, <laughs> yes, I was. But I I write a story in there that I won't tell the whole story, but I write in there about um, the conversation we had in 2004. And we were both at a conference, and we got together for, like, tea or coffee uh, in the morning before all the conference stuff started. And you started talking to me about your idea about World Usability Day. Yep. And now we know that memory is, uh, long-term memory is not particularly accurate, right? So I have no idea if this memory is real, but I'm sticking with it. Um, (laughs) Because my memory of it is that you were like, I don't know, this might be a good idea. It's not like you were like totally convinced and you were, it was a go and you were working on it. You were like, what, you know, I'm thinking about this thing. And I just was like, do it. Do yeah, it. that's right. I remember. I, I thought it was the best idea. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I remember that. that. That's my memory. I mean, I was also testing the waters of people, you know, that I thought, oh, what? 
you know, you also understand the field. You've been, you know, around the same amount of time. You, you know, a lot of the people like, you know, like would this fly, you know? So yeah, yeah that so was I said, a, do it. And uh, yeah, and here we are. And it worked. Yeah, no, it definitely worked. Yeah. All right. So now t- tell us it now that I brought up the book, tell us about the book. Right. So it's interesting because, um, you know, having been working in all different aspects of the field, starting with, you know, companies for 20 years and then consulting and academia um, and then watching the field evolve. And I think I got the idea to write this book, uh, Successful User Experience Strategies and Roadmaps, uh, published by Morgan Kaufman. Um, in 2015. And so I got the idea for it because then after all those different experiences, I started um, teaching a class in the Human Factors and Information Design program at Bentley. And it was testing and assessment programs. Uh, is, and it's a required course. And what's interesting is I, I, as the field grew, I've been, I've been working in all these different methodologies and doing all these things. But at the beginning, we didn't like give them a title <laughs> or say this is field methods versus this is a usability test versus, you know, that. And so it was so fun to teach it a few times. And then I realized that I had a lot of this in my head of the the evolution of the field and, you know, the tools and all of that. Um, and that because I've worked with so many people, I have so many uh, possibilities for case studies. Uh, and I had been talking to Morgan and Coffin for various different things, and I had written already four chapters in other people's books, so they knew who I was. Uh, so when I had the proposal, um, you know, uh, it it went out, and I and I wrote it. So it's it's two or three different audiences. At the at the more general scale, the audience is for somebody. Um, possibly in school, in an undergrad or graduate, but also not just working in technology, wanting to understand what does a successful user experience look like? What does it mean? Where did it come from? How could I get one? Um, there's a lot of practical takeaways. Uh, there's, you know, case studies of all different types of things. And then um, at a deeper level, if you are actually running studies or trying to solve a research program in your company, uh, you could use the book as literally a roadmap. Um, and I sort of tested some of the ideas out as I was doing my consulting, you know, realizing that, you know, sometimes a pro- and then the third category was specifically for, say, product managers or development manager, more the manager level, who are actually managing projects, but maybe didn't completely understand what user experience is or 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 is used for. Um, and, you know, when I was, I actually remember when I first, you know, published the book, I gave a few of those away to some product managers. And indeed, yes, they, <laughs> they did seem to think it answered a lot of their big questions. Um, but my favorite parts, not just the methodology, is the stuff in the beginning um, where I, I think, I, I like to think back to what we used to call usability. And to me, that's, that's the piece that is connecting all of it that no matter what we're calling it, user experience, I mean, all the other things, you know, information architecture, uh, you know, the user design, like all the different pieces, I think it's usability because usability is about how a human uses like an object at the, at the most abstract level. And then um, my favorite example is the Kodak example. and. You know, my my original training is as a photographer and a graphic designer before I, uh, you know, got into computers at all. Um, 
And so I, I, uh, I've always had, there's always been a place in my work and, and my, uh, expression with photography. Um, and so when I was in graduate school, a lot of my work was around, uh, you know, how say an artist or a photographer would use technology. Um, and then I ended up working at Kodak. So I was able to connect all the dots there. And then it became clear to me when I was in the research labs that the Kodak camera was actually a great example of a very usable, um, of usability. So, and I use that example in the book. So, you know, in, um, around the beginning of the industrial revolution, uh, there was some photography available. It was more daguerreotypes or wet. No, wait a minute. I want to clarify something. Yes, please. I'm going. You, as you weren't oh. working at the time of the industrial revolution. Now, thank you so much for pointing. I that just out. thought I would. <laughs> <laughs> You're a good friend. Thank you so much. Just you know, let's just uh, make this for, for the for the younger kids in the audience. <laughs> what? When was the industrial revolution? How, hey, hey, what what was it? What was it like uh, riding around in steam cars? Yes, tell us, hot, Elizabeth. Hot and sweaty. Mm. I mean, <laughs> no air conditioning, you know. So no. it was yeah. a it was a challenge. It was okay. a challenge. Keep, but here's keep going. I didn't it, mean to you, interrupt you. No, no, no. You. This is great because you know we said before we started the odds of sort of wandering off into different topics are are great. Like. This is this is part of it. Like there's a lot of of ideas always sort of percolating around. So um, but the thing with photography in at the end, let's just go like 1880. You if you wanted to take a landscape picture, you had to take a, a horse and um, a cart. You had to you had to wet your plate out in the field, you know, get it to the camera, take a picture and then develop it like out in the woods in, in a field somewhere. So. It was a very difficult technology to use. You had to be an expert in that technology to use yeah. it. And what's what uh, George Eastman actually did, the founder of Kodak, was create a, you know, he made that technology usable. So he uh, figured out um, that, you know, it, we need dry film. Not, like he broke it down into little pieces uh, and he solved each one. So like if a human being wants to take a picture in a field, what do we have to do so they, you know, like somebody doesn't have to be an expert? And he figured out dry film, uh, and then he bought a dry film company, and then he invented this roller to make it roll, uh, and then he came up with this little camera. And so he had all the pieces together, but I think it wasn't completely a good user experience until he figured out a way to make it very usable, which was this. So he had a camera in 1888, the first um, Kodak camera, had... Uh, Basically, it was a uh, one button. You push, you push the button. We do the rest. All you had to do is look through the rangefinder, uh, literally push the shutter and wind it. And it came. Um, the first one was twenty five dollars, but by eighteen ninety, he was starting to sell the smaller ones for around a dollar. So most people could actually get a camera. Uh, and he sold it with a hundred, you know, loaded with a roll of film with a hundred uh, pictures. And um, the business proposition was that you you bought it. Uh, you shot a hundred pictures. You mailed it back to him. The he whole developed. Camera? Yeah, yeah. It wasn't so this was a disposable camera way back then. No, 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 because then he reloaded it. He, <gasps> he and he, sent it back. Yeah, to yeah. Because and it worked. No, it really. I, worked. I never thought of that. I yeah. didn't know that's what the cameras were doing. You know, it's as we're talking about cameras. I'm assuming that there's some people listening who don't even remember you know, non-digital cameras. Film. 
I know I'm talking about film. Now, Guthrie, you remember film, don't you? You're old enough to remember when cameras used film of some kind, aren't you? Yes, I oh, am. Because you, yes. you used, I know you used disposable cameras, which, which had film, film in them. And then you'd send in the whole camera with the film, right. and your pictures would literally come back, so it was not digital. But I bet there's some people, do you think there, Guthrie, all right, all right, Elizabeth or Guthrie, when did the digital picture thing start? What, what, around what year was that? So, uh, oh, basically, I happen to know, I happen to know, <laughs> that in 2007, yeah. the Art Institute of Chicago, school, uh, that, uh, uh, the, the, the big art school in Chicago, yeah. uh -huh. they um, shuddered. Did you, did you like that? Yes, that was a good Yeah, the T or the T? Yeah, like the camera shuttered. Oh, I heard, but yeah. Yeah, it was good. It was like both, though. Yeah. They shuttered their film department in 2007. Yeah. So probably 2003, 2004 was really when people mostly started switching to digital cameras. And then by 2007, it was to the point where it was so rare to use an actual film camera that even in, in art school, even with the whole thing of the Ansel Adams and all the history right. of, right. of, of, of uh, phys physical film, the chemicals became too hard to get and became too expensive. And yep. they were like, why not just switch to- So we, we, might have a f we might have a few people listening who, you know, if they didn't start taking pictures till like they were 10. Yeah, right. right? So if you were 10 in 2007, Right, that would make you like twenty-one today. Yeah, yeah. I have a son who fits exactly that. Is and what's funny is I watch. So my oldest is thirty, and he used film for a very long time. Uh, but my youngest son, uh, Danny, who's twenty-one, doesn't ever remember you. In fact, what I remember is him finding my camera with film, <laughs> and then pulling the film out because he wondered what the heck is this. And he said, "What is this?" You know, and I'm like, "Okay, that's it. I'm done." <laughs> And and so yeah, so I think that's the generation that probably never took pictures with film. But uh -huh. you know, so um, I recommend anyone who's really young listening. I don't think we have anyone who's that young. But if we do have any listeners yeah. who are that young listening, I recommend just just as an experience, um, looking at some 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 film. If you can get some film and look under a microscope, or I mean, I guess. <laughs> A yeah. very high, I mean, the problem is, is that like a lot of like the Walgreens film development stuff, it's just not high quality enough. But if you can actually look at a high quality print um, and look at the pixels that were there, because it's very different, right? Like uh, today's cameras, that's all based on the pixel system. This idea that yeah. you have a square that is a certain color. Um, and just to look at the older film, it's just a totally, it's very, very different. So that and listening to um, a vinyl record, but not, but that that's that's never been converted into uh, digital. So a lot right. of times you get, you know, you can you can play a record, and the record can output in analog from the record player. But then when it goes into your receiver, unless you have a more expensive receiver that has a analog only processing to send it to the speakers, mm -hmm. it's getting converted to a digital signal anyways. So. Right. Yeah, so, so I encourage anyone who's really young, if you've never experienced sort of um, these forms of art in a, uh, in a true, in the analog way where it hasn't been digitized at all, uh, it's, really, it's really quite interesting. And all I right, think, I, I got to ask you, Guthrie, why, why is it interesting and why do you think that's important? Speaking as someone 
who actually is old enough to have spent a lot of time listening to analog you know LPs it is and a lot of time looking it's taking and looking at photos that are not digital it is a new experience uh, you've never seen a picture like it and you've never heard a, a sound like it um, so, it's subtle but it's definitely like whoa like different. that's cool yeah yeah I mean I could jump in because I'm sort of I actually get both sides of this <laughs> because the thing is it's, it's a different uh, kind of experience so like if even if you look at a picture uh, a silver halide print picture in a um, computer I think the textures the richness even a black and white the different levels of shades of gray it's very rich which digital can sort of do, but it's the quality of the light is different. It looks different, and I think that is similar to to sound. Um, I mean, my ear isn't trained well enough to know uh, when I'm listening to you know analog versus digital. A lot of times, I can tell, but my eye, I can tell when I'm looking at a photograph. So, I, so I do see it. Yeah. I so the I mean the reality is is that digital the long term bet is is digital so we will get you know it's really hard because you know we've been comparing uh, i remember you know a couple of years ago people you know people would say oh you know uh, and there's there, there's nothing like analog film you know because it, it, like it, there's it's it's a higher quality this thing that thing and that's right. not and that's not true because there's only been digital film for you know 15 20 years in 20 years, the quality of the yeah. of the sensors are going to be just blow, because uh, because yeah. eventually, you know, with with chemical film, there is a resolution to it. It's an yeah. amazing high resolution, but eventually, you know, you get blobs of chemicals on a sheet. Like eventually, you do run out of resolution, and and small itsy bitsy micro LED pixels will eclipse it eventually. But um, in those imperfections, uh, there is a uh, the, the, there's just a tone, there's a feel. Um, I know people who have kind of listened to a record uh, for the first time on like good speakers actually doing only um, analog. And it's not, it doesn't sound better, but it there's a different feel to it. It's like, a, it's like a richer, fuller sound, but that doesn't mean it's better or higher quality. It's just different. Different. Right, different. Yeah, I guess that's a good way of putting it. Right. Hmm. So. Wow, I had. Uh, I don't think I ever thought about these two things that way. Yeah. <laughs> but it's it's like it's like uh, it's you know as technology moves forward, you always lose something. Yeah, and hopefully eventually you gain, but that's not always clear. <laughs> so, but you know, people said the same thing when uh, other you know, kind of forms of art, sort of. Uh, what you know uh, like 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 it's very it, it's very if you go to art school yeah which you didn't which I, I did yeah which i did but i did for a little while yeah. you know i'm sure back in the day everyone's making stuff with pottery and painting and all the physical mediums and now that's still around but like you know the real geniuses are making ex uh, electronic experiences I bet, we hear, I bet we hear from some uh, painters or, or or sculptors that don't agree with that. Well, you would you you know it as well as I do that um, having having a physical experience is very different. 
the haptic feedback of the of yeah, being yeah, in, that's, a, in a physical place. That's definitely true. So it's not that, to say it's going to go away, um, but huh? It's uh, it, it's know. like an evolution, you know, yeah. because like photography was like that when it first came, because painters were kind of angry, uh, even though it took so long, you know, for the donkey and the cart. Um, Oh, there's noise outside my window all of a sudden. So if you guys hear it, let me know. Oh, no, don't, no, no. I, I, no, it's fine. I live in the city. It's really hot here. I got the windows okay. open. There's leaf blowers and sirens. Yeah, that's what's going on. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> leaf blowers, occasionally the sirens, but not so much. Um, but anyway, uh, so photography was sort of like that, right? Because at first the painters were like, this isn't art. Don't call it <laughs> art. But, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and even the photojournalists, when people started taking pictures, um, you know, because like Matthew Brady, he's he took the picture photographs of um, the war, which, by the way, started to change the way people thought of war because I could see pictures. But it raised a question. Is it real? Is it not real? Turns out he set up some of his pictures. So so even the painters are saying, see, it's not really true. It's not really real. You know, and there's always a resistance to whatever the new transformation is. But um, I think it's evolution. <laughs> just going to keep sort of you know changing and um and that's where a good user experience comes in because it's our job to make things more usable in whatever form they are so that they you know work for people so huh all right all round circle here yeah i've got i i have another question for you then i'm going to take us off in a different direction because that's part of my job here yeah um you mentioned before we started recording uh, you mentioned the words Sig Chi 2030 Vision. Yes, I did. That's right. And what does, so you're going to have to, you know, first of all, Explain uh, all there's of a lot of people <laughs> don't even know what Sig Chi is. So, right. yeah. Okay. What, this is something, this is a new thing that you're, well, I don't know how new it is, but this is something you're working with I'm others with, on. Right. That's great. So go, so, go ahead. Tell us what this is. All right, so first of all, um, it's part of the Association for Computing Machinery. So the Association for Computing Machinery, um, their offices, our, the, the association's offices are in New York City. Um, but it's Sometimes inter- that people might know that as ACM. Yeah, 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 ACM. There you go, right. And uh, so they have, so there's about like 100,000 members all around the world. And A lot of like computer engineer types. Exactly, yes, in all different uh, variations of what they, we do, you know, so some of it is like we, there's one SIG Chi, which is, um, a special interest group for computer human interaction, but there's also C-Graph, which is all about, um, it's basically computer graphics, but it's animation. There's SIG, uh, AI or SIG art about artificial intelligence, SIG ed about education. Like that, it goes on and on, excuse me, but it's all computing related. So, Sig Chi, I believe, is the second largest, um, you know, s- a special interest group. Or sig- is it? Uh, SIGGRAPH, I think, is the first. Wow. Um, now, that's, that must have grown a lot then. That wasn't always true, right? That's correct. Yes. And SIG Chi, well, ACM's been around, I don't even know how long that goes back, and, this, and the special interest group, Computer and Human Interaction, Sig Chi has been around a long time, right? Yeah, How so long? like mid eighties, like eighty five or eighty six. Yeah, um, nineteen eighty five. We're not talking so- about industrial <laughs> revolution anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I, I wasn't alive. Uh huh. So seventeen eighty five. No, nineteen eighty five. The era of Hamilton. 
uh, newly popular star. Uh, but anyway, um, so so Sig Chi has an annual conference called Chi, which is Computer Human Interaction, and um, Chi Chi. This year it was almost four thousand people. Was um, it really? Wait, wait, wait. Can I can I ask a question? Absolutely. Why is it pronounced the way it's pronounced? Chi, you mean instead of chi or chi? I, it's just I don't know. Because I live in Chicago, right? So right. we always say like we we say Chi Town, you know? Right. Chicago. But to me, there's um, there's people who uh, use almost those letters, uh, and it's a Hebrew word, and it's called Chi, mm. and it means life. So, <laughs> so, but it's pronounced Chi because it is um, it's a hard ch with the computer and the human as like, you know, the cut, like as a hard, hard letter, um, which is interesting. Uh, so, so the, let's see. So Kai has been growing at a big rate and the conference is having a little trouble um, finding venues. Uh, and then there's also like this year, I can't, I don't want to be quoted on this. So I don't, I won't say the exact number, but there was an enormous amount of papers. Like there was four or five tracks a day. And it was like four, five days. I don't know. It was overwhelming how much was going on. Uh, and there was no way you could see it all or be part of it all. Um, so Sikai decided to basically commission a small group of people. We have 10 of us. Uh, and we're led by um, three uh, members. So it's 13 altogether. Uh, three people have been leaders in ACM and CHI for many years. And our, and our mission was to come up with a vision for what the CHI conference would look like in 2030. And so they brought together um, 10 people, uh, I would say one from every, at least one from every continent except for Antarctica. Uh, and then, you know, a good mix of practitioners and academics, a really nice mix of ages um, and, and, you know, the first meeting we had like a couple of video conference meetings, uh, and it was great. It was nice because I've been on video conferences, but never with 13 people, uh, all <laughs> with a picture yeah. and it's run so nicely. You know, you could see it was really human computer people, you know, where we all were focusing on what we could see on the screen. So, you know, we were like doing an ice mixer where we would talk to the person who was to the right of us that we could see. <laughs> It was a funny little game because not all of us saw the same. It was it, it was kind of a fun icebreaker to do online. Again, never having done that before. That was and that was uh, can, do you remember what technology you used? Uh, I think it was Zoom. Zoom. Okay. It was a lot of academics, so we were all like, I use that uh, to yeah. teach actually. So, uh, so anyway, so then we had an in-person uh, meeting in Chicago or Chai. Is that you say? Chai. Uh, <laughs> Chi-town. Yeah. Chi-town. Um, and we, we, then... We, it's, it's really it's really shy. Shy. Oh, sorry. Shy. Well, it's because oh, it's like shy. Chicago, right? Ah. Oh. Chi-town. Okay. Because okay. chi would be with like the T. Yeah, okay. I know. That's gotcha. <laughs> okay. Um, and then, uh, so, so we came up with some plans while we were in Chicago, basically to do like participatory design, card sorting, data collection, during the CHI conference um, in May, and then come back. Uh, you mean in order to, you were doing these techniques in order to gather data on what? On what CHI 2030 conference should look like. Okay. So, so it wasn't just the, the 13 of us coming out with what we thought it should look like, because we all clearly had thoughts <laughs> before we even talked to people. Um, and I think that was why they brought us together. So 
it was great. We came up with a card sorting activity. We had a survey. We had affinity diagrams. We had a lot of casual interviewing. Um, and so then we met back in New York a couple of weeks ago to collect it and vote on what we thought the recommendations were. Uh, and we're preparing our recommendations, excuse me, now. But a bunch of initiatives started to spin out from that. Uh, one of them happens to be uh, where World Usability Day might be in, in 2030. And if we can connect some dots um, between the United Nations and maybe some of the bigger goals of CHI, again, with those United Nations Sustainable Goals, uh, because one of the issues that CHI is struggling with is a global problem. You know, for example, how do um, practitioners and researchers from countries that are developing, uh, they, they don't have money to travel, uh, how can they equally be represented? How can they come, right? How can they participate? Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because a couple of years, and depending on where the conference is, Kai has actually used robots where, but there's, a I think there's like 30, so there's a limited number where people can sign up, you get a robot, you drive it around for a few days, and you can go into places in, like driving your robot, you can go in remotely. Um, and that's interesting because people, like I was at one of the Kai conferences where that was happening, and people were actually stopping and talking to their friends who, who couldn't travel but were sitting at a computer at home, wherever home was, talking to, you know, the person in the room via uh, being a computer, uh, being a robot. So there was some interesting ideas uh, that we thought we could try out, but of course they cost money. And so there's all sorts of barriers that we're trying to get through. And this year was um, interesting at Kai because there was a lot of discussion and voices of um, people, you know, who had disabilities who felt perhaps that, you know, Kai wasn't, um, you know, tr push doing universal design as much as they could have. And then, you know, it turns into partially a, um, a venue issue, not just the conference. And so anyway, there's all sorts of interesting items that came up. Uh, and we're, we're thinking about different ways of, of trying to make recommendations, I think particularly around, and again, we haven't decided yet, but I could just say some of the feedback came up with, you know, a lot of people expect Kai to maintain standards um, with peer review so that, you know, they they need to publish something. This is an, um, you know, an esteemed place to publish it. And so the standards shouldn't go down. But then at the same time, when you're getting so many submissions, do you need to present them all at the conference? Or is there another way of perhaps, you know, having something more of a journal model, uh, and then how do you do other activities with things bigger than yourself? Um, so how can we connect to these other communities, you know, where we're trying to do more local things, like a little bit in the model of World Usability Day, where let's say, you know, this happened in, in the Middle East and also in China, where certain countries, you know, were not able to get a visa to come to, say, mm -hmm. the United States. So then what other things can we do? That also doesn't include everyone getting on an airplane. Um, so, you know, we're just sort of wrapping that up. And uh, I'm not sure, you know, the, where this will be discussed. But I think, uh, you know, by the end of July, we should be able to talk about it more. It's just exciting for me because I'm happy to see, you know, an organization like ACM and SIGCHI starting to look forward the same way World Usability Day is and the United Nations. You know, like I... There's a lot of work to be done to make the world a better place, and I'm and I'm glad we're all starting to to look at those things together. So, so thank you for asking me about that, Susan. Yeah. Now I have a question for you because you know we've Guthrie and I we would we just came back last week. We were at the oh. UXPA conference, right? Which is another conference that 
has been around for, you know, uh, quite a long the time, I think. Yeah, yeah. 20, 20 years or 21 yeah. years or something yeah. like that. And, um, and, uh, and it's, it still seems to be going strong, although I know it went through some ups and downs in terms of attendance over the years. There's so many more, uh, you know, ba- I, I was talking to someone at the conference and saying that, you know, years ago, there was kind of like two conferences, maybe yeah. three in mm-hmm. the U.S. You had, uh, if you were interested in this whole, you know, usability, computer-human interaction, you had like the the uh, Ergonomics Society. Oh, yes. HSES. Remember those guys? Yeah, yep. yeah you had, you had that, which is still going on. You had U- UXPA, which was called UPA, Usability right. Professional Association, earlier. And then you had the SIG Chi Conference. And, you know, it was like those three. And uh, some of us went to all three. And some of us went to one or two. You know, we did what you could. Um, and now, how many, you know, there's like so many conferences. Like the yeah. little local ones that are really popular and really good and, and not that small. You know, right, you, know right. you have a huge, huge people group in Boston does yeah. does yeah. a big one. And then there's other, you know, organizations. Um, but so I find it interesting that even with all this proliferation of more conferences, that SIGCHI has, you know, grown. I mean, I, I haven't been to SIGCHI very often and it's been quite a long time. And it was not 4,000 people the last time I went. So do you have a sense of why that conference in particular you know, is still so strong? Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, it's ACM. So ACM has 100,000 members. None of these other, none of these other organizations have that many, like even um, UPA, then UXPA, like at our height, uh, we had about 25 at at UXPA. And it's the membership has has gone down um, in terms of, you know, just international members, because there's a lot of local stuff going on. Uh, so there's that, but I think the other piece is that um, ACM and all the different Chi, conf- uh, sorry, all the different um, special interest group, the SIG graphs, the SIG ed, all that, they're all supported by ACM ultimately, and they have requirements of financial, um, you know, how much they have to have in the bank and what they do, and then they get a lot of support from the professional staff. So I just know having done so much work with volunteers that if you have a professional staff who can do some of the heavy lifting with some of the projects or managing the meetings or, you know, some of that stuff, um, that it really streamlines it. So, you know, ACM has a relationship with a, you know, they're having like they're the reason that our group, uh, the CHI 2030 task force was in Chicago is because ACM had a room block they were doing a big you know some other meeting some other conference and so they could just fit us in you know and it was more f- effective financially so I think having this large organization behind you like ACM uh, having a staff you know all of those things you know there's a lot to be said for uh, sustaining <laughs> sustaining uh, organizations that way um, and that I think if it's built solely on people's uh, volunteer work it's harder to sustain. And then I think some of the other conferences, because it's interesting, going into the, the 2030 uh, meetings, I was doing my own research, and I realized like some of those smaller conferences, they're either run by chapters of, of like UXPA or CHI or SIGCHI or um, 
I think IXDA is another one, or IA Institute, there's all these, uh, but a lot of them are chapters of them. Or the other kinds of conferences are the ones that consultant groups run. Uh, and those are a different model altogether. Yeah, the for-profit companies yeah. that are putting yeah. in conferences. Yeah. yeah, that's been a lot of the new ones, too, that I, I that have cropped up. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, so, that, yeah, so that's interesting, yeah. So okay, now I'm now I'm gonna uh, ask you a uh, a question that I uh, you probably didn't see coming, and maybe it'll be hard to maybe it'll be hard to answer. So if you if you uh, if if you if you're someone if someone is not you know they haven't been to a lot of conferences, and so they don't have the favorite that they always like to go to every year, kind of thing. What conference should a, you know, person who's relatively new to the field of either computer-human interaction or UX, and they say, I'd really like to go to a conference, what conference would you suggest they go to? That's a really great, great question, um, because there's so many all around the world, but, and, you know, I'll, I'll before I answer it, I'll just say it's possible, I'm biased, but the conference, the one-day conference that Boston UXPA runs sells out at a 1,000 people. Oh, my gosh, really? Yeah, yeah. and the range of people, we do have people coming from Europe to present. We have people from all over the United States. And, um, you know, there's tracks for different levels. There's tracks for different levels of people to present. Uh, one of my students actually uh, presented um, in the 10-minute talk track this year. Um, and then all the way up to um, last year, I was on a panel where we did, uh, we called it a qual versus quant smackdown. And we had um, myself uh, and Mina, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I always say her name wrong, Katha Mondrum um, from uh, Bentley. And we were um, taking the qual side. And Tom Tullis, do you know him? Sure, He's still I know the Tom, metrics. Yeah. Uh, and Michael Fritzy were taking the qual, uh, the quant side, and we they dressed up as um, wrestlers, Worldwide Federation wrestlers, and I dressed up as Wonder Woman, and Mina dressed up as the um, Queen of Wakanda, and we had a whole it, you know, it was fun, but we really did illustrate the differences <laughs> about like qualitative big picture thinking and visioning versus you know um, measuring. Um, you know, finite metrics and, and sort of, you know, of course, the end of our little panel smackdown was that we obviously need each other. <laughs> but like, that was a great introduction if you had no idea what qual versus quant was about. Whereas if you did, you could understand the subtleties. So there's a lot of examples like that in that Boston UXPA conference, where you could get a touch of whatever, you know, like, and it's a one day thing. Um, and then after that, I, you know, I feel like it's so specific to you know, what's your budget? Where do you, where are you living or where can you get to now? Um, at, you know, in terms of like, what's a good fit? Uh, do you think many people will be listening to here from not in the United States? Cause there's stuff. Yeah, all over we the, do. We yeah. get people from, from, uh, in our listening pool. I, I know we were thrilled once when we were at, at a conference reception in Sweden, and someone uh -huh. from Sweden said, I love your podcast, and we were like, yeah. yay. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there's some really good ones. Uh, I know some really good conferences in different parts of the world, or do you have some favorites well, that are not yeah. U.S.? Yeah, one that just happened I didn't get to go to, but uh, lots of people that I know. Mina was presenting. 
Um, Tomer Sharon is another uh, person that I've known for a long time. He was presenting. Uh, my friend and um, manager, Bill Albert, was presenting. And it was UX London. Uh, and it just, it seemed like, uh, like I knew people coming in from Asia for it. And it just seemed so, so interesting. And I know they do that every year. Um, and so that's one. Uh, India also has UX India, which is another one. Um, and then... Uh, I can't remember. There's a few in um, in China that are, are kind of interesting also. Um, user-friendly, user-friendly. That's another one. Oh, and now there's UX Hong Kong. So, <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot of these littler ones that are either a combination. Some of them, like, um, I'd say even uh, UXPA Boston, there are corporate sponsors. So there are some sure. consulting yeah. companies that also are, take a part. Um, But those are those like the ones that I just mentioned, those are um, those are pretty good because you can get a range. I mean, I as an experienced person often, uh, you know, I don't mean to sound snobby, but sometimes it's hard for me to find something new to learn or something I could build on. So that's what I always look for. And that is why I go back to Kai, just because there's always something I have no idea. Sometimes it's like I'm I'm I. You know, I don't know. Some of the some of the um, virtual reality stuff and all of that is wonderful. Uh, I don't. It's not something I spend a lot of time um, looking at, but you know, there is new stuff there. So, but I think geographically, uh, you know, the ones that I mentioned are are all pretty good. great. Thanks for doing that. <laughs> You're welcome. All right. So uh, I think we've probably, you know, as usual, run out of time. Oh yeah. Um, well, yeah, we do that. So. Uh, Let's just let people know if they want to. Uh, is it okay if they want to get in touch with you about something? Oh, yes. How how Absolutely. would they find you? What's the best way to find you? Um, so you know you can just send me an email at Bentley. Uh, I could. Do you want me to just say my email address? Yeah, please. Happy yeah. That? So it's E Rosenzweig, and you might say, how do you spell that? So E R O S E N Z W E I G at bentley.edu and bentley is b-e-n-t-l-e-y dot e-d-u e-rosenzweig at bentley.edu great i'm happy elizabeth thanks so much for coming on it's been great fun and uh i i i'm glad you were there at the beginning of the industrial revolution (laughs) this one but in my two cents. It was a pleasure. And uh, yeah, I appreciate that last point as well. But um, <laughs> it, it was a pleasure. It's great to have known you so long and to work with you so much. And also it was fun to chat with you also, Gunther. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. <laughs>